Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Alabama Crimson Tide rule the SEC West once again. And is it time to take seriously Alabama's bid for the college football playoff on the heels of their win over LSU on Saturday? Welcome in to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer, along with John Adams. And John, as is sometimes, some would say maybe even often is the case, we had the SEC West dead wrong this year. We were both saying since the preseason, LSU would win the West. LSU is not going to win the West. It's lost its two biggest games in the division, lost to Ole Miss on the road, lost to Alabama on the road, and it is now a side story in Alabama's show. So how did we get this so wrong, do you think? Well, let's don't blame ourselves. That's the last thing we need to do. Uh, No, we just blame LSU for not playing up to expectations. It's got one of the most dynamic offenses I've ever seen. And uh, defense is awful. And LSU just hadn't been able to get that straightened out. But uh, you can go back to the Florida State game. I knew we were in trouble uh, when I watched that Florida State game, and you were at that game when Florida State just steamrolled LSU in the second half. Ole Miss game could have gone either either way, but I I doubled down, and I think you did too. I doubled down on LSU and said, okay, it's it, it will beat Alabama and Tuscaloosa, and Alabama just uh, just pulled away from LSU in the second half. Uh, watching that game, we talked a lot about quarterbacks, and I think Jaden Daniels is a front runner for the Heisman still. But Jalen Milrow in that game, it, he reminded me of uh, he reminded me of Vince Young at Texas years ago when he wow, left Texas. That's to high praise. Well, I know, but you know, I mean, watching I, I covered that Southern Cal Texas championship game, and I mean, it was like it was a man among boys. I mean, Southern Cal had all these future pros on his defense, and he couldn't tackle Vince Young. And uh, Jalen Milrow, with his combination of size and speed, I mean, he just ran over one LSU defender, and he also run. He turns the corner, and you think somebody's got the angle on him, and they can't catch him. So his passing is good enough the way he can run, and Alabama turned him loose in that game. I think Alabama needs to keep turning him loose in every game that matters. Yeah, Alabama's clearly altered its offensive game plan since the first few weeks of the season. Um, they are Milrose run more. It was a few weeks ago they put in some more designed runs for him. Now he seems more willing to run not only on design runs, but if his first few options aren't open on a pass, he'll he'll take off and go with his legs. It's not one read and go. He'd still rather beat you with his arm. Um, but we saw Saturday when it wasn't there for them and LSU was dropping a lot of guys into coverage. They really took away Alabama's downfield passing, which had been one of its best offensive weapons since about week four. LSU did a nice job of taking that off the board. And so Milrow, you know, when he didn't have an open receiver, he'd run it. He was also working the middle of the field really well. He's looking like a much more complete quarterback And coming into the year, one of the reasons why I didn't have Alabama on my four or five team shortlist to win a national championship was they didn't have a national championship quarterback. And I think it's really, really hard in this day and age, unless you've just assembled a super team. And I don't think this is one of Nick Saban's super team, but barring a super team, you need a a national championship caliber quarterback to, to win the whole thing. I didn't think Alabama had that. Now, As we sit here in November, it's starting to look like it has a national championship caliber quarterback. I'm not saying Jalen Milrow is the best quarterback in the nation, but I think he's good enough at this point where if you have some things fall in place around him, 
they've got a shot. I'm not predicting Alabama's going to win it all, but they've got a shot, and I didn't know whether they would coming into the season because of that quarterback situation. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying, Blake. And I go back to that Vince Young comparison when he was at Texas. When he started out, and he was a, a dynamic runner right away, and people wondered about his passing skills, uh, kind of uneven performances in the passing game. And you didn't ever know if he would be a a, a great cor- a passer, but he's so he's so talented. He was so talented as a running back, just strength, speed, moves, all that stuff. And I'm starting to look at Milrow the same way. I think there's a tendency when we look at quarterbacks, we first look at them as passers. And if a guy, you know, I go back to Michael Vick. Michael Vick, when he was at Virginia Tech, everybody said, yeah, he's a great runner, but just a so-so passer. Well, no, he's not. He's a great, great runner. He's so good that when these guys get in the open field, they may score. Uh, It's And it's not like they're running back where they have to wade through that line. They're back there and they can spot an opening and take off. And next thing you know, they're in the secondary. And when Jalen Milrow's in the secondary, uh, he's going to be really hard to handle. And I was never more aware of it than I was in that LSU game. It's almost as though Alabama said to Jalen Milrow, hey, man, just be you. Don't worry about anything else. And he took it from there. Yeah, that, that first touchdown run in particular, it's the one he he went off left tackle. I mean, there's sometimes we, we think of guys in like, oh, he's really fast for a quarterback. I mean, Jalen Milrow is just fast for anybody. He was the fastest <laughs> guy on the field. Uh-huh. And I mean, it, it was just eye-opening, the speed he showed on that play. Like, Jaden Daniels has good speed. He weaves through traffic really, really good. He's... he's um, you know, he might be the best quarterback in the country. To your point, I think he's going to be a Heisman finalist. I don't know that I share your level of confidence that he's going to win it. I think he'll be a finalist. He's he's really the complete package, and it was a shame that he exited in the fourth quarter due to injury. But, like, I, I think there's, like, Jaden Daniels fast, and then there's Jalen Milrow fast because that just – that was next level what we saw from him, you know, on a couple of those runs where – um, it, it didn't matter what defender you had out there. You could you could put eleven wide receivers on the field. You weren't going to catch him on some of those runs. It was crazy. Well, well, Blake. One of the things I, I think where you really notice speed is uh, turning a corner. I remember being amazed the first time I saw Reggie Bush in person and covered a game. How he could turn a corner, and, and it looked as though the he would be contained as though the defense had the leverage and would would cut, would knock him out of bounds, but he turned the corner and he was just gone. He just had another gear. And, and the play you're describing, I thought the same thing about Milrow in that game. When you saw his speed turning that corner, there's nobody catching him from behind. No. Or you could be standing right in his way, and I don't know if you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna catch him. Yeah, it, it was a it was a defining performance for him. Uh, but also, it was another case of Alabama's defense getting better as the game went on. We saw that against Texas A&M. We saw it against Tennessee. We saw it again uh, on Saturday night. Now, I know there was the controversial hit on Jaden Daniels. Was it targeting? Was it not? I know you and I have talked off air. You thought it was targeting. Um, a lot of people thought it was targeting. But even before that, Alabama's defense had, had kind of taken over the game, like, LSU scored on the first drive of the second half. They took the lead. And then from that point, Alabama's defense stood tall. They, they forced the interception uh, on Daniels, uh, the deflected pass. And, you know, really, I thought it was yet another case of what we saw early from Alabama's defense wasn't the finished product. And for whatever reason, I don't know whether they wear teams down. I, I think it's maybe more halftime adjustments. Um, I, I don't know. I can't totally put my finger on it, but this is a second half football team. We've seen it multiple times now. Blake, I think that it's a a popular narrative. Anytime Alabama stumbles, the immediate response seems to be, well, is the dynasty done? Is Nick Saban about to fade off into the sunset? The way this season is unfolded, 
I mean, it may turn out that this could be one of Nick Saban's best coaching jobs. With You've written about how he handled the quarterback, the ups and downs of quarterback situation early on. Starts out with Jalen Milrow, then, then goes to two other guys in the third game after Alabama lost to uh, to Texas, and Milrow didn't have the best of games. Uh, but then we saw in those games that, uh, you know, those guys were struggling. And, and so Saban then goes back to Milrow. Then he, sh- the offense is reshaped around Milrow. Then the defense comes along. And I still don't look at Alabama and say, boy, they're just loaded all these skill positions. Uh, they don't have the normal firepower at running back and wide receiver, but the offensive line's getting better. And as you said, the defense is getting better. And if this team makes the college football playoff, it could be a handful. All right, John, I want to get into some um, broader spectrum factor fiction topics around the SEC, bringing other teams into this conversation. But before we go there, I'm going to put Alabama against a handful of different teams on a neutral field. So this would be a, uh, a bowl game type setting. And and your gut reaction, are you taking Alabama or are you taking the other team in these matchups? Okay, Alabama versus Oregon. Who would you take? Alabama. Washington? Alabama. Okay, uh, Michigan? Michigan. They'll, Ohio they'll, State? They'll have uh, Alabama well-scouted. Uh, Ohio State, I would, take, <laughs> I would take Alabama over Ohio State. How about uh, Florida State? I think I might take Florida State there. Okay, so you've got Michigan and 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 Florida State. You like them in a neutral field, head to head with Alabama. Uh, you like Alabama over the two Pac-12 teams and Ohio State, and uh, the one I saved for last, which we will probably get to see in a few weeks' time, Alabama or Georgia. I'd still go with the defending champs there, Georgia. They're 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 on a collision course for Atlanta, so we'll. We'll yeah, and we've seen time. that. We've yeah. seen it before. Uh, it's funny for we we talk so much about other teams and other programs coming on, but uh, so many times it just comes down to Alabama and Georgia in the SEC now. All right, we're going to broaden the the conversation here, John. Yeah, beyond Alabama and uh, fact or fiction, handful of scenarios. I want to get into some hot seat, but first, let's start with the Heisman because you went there with Jaden Daniels. And and if LSU had won that game Saturday, um, Daniels delivered a number of what would have been dubbed Heisman moments. Uh, he was he was a human highlight reel. Jalen Milrow matched him. Uh, but for, there were stretches of that game where Jaden Daniels was the best player on the field. Now he's in the uncomfortable scenario of trying to win a Heisman trophy off a three-loss team and who knows, maybe LSU is going to stumble again somewhere along the line. As we know, this is an individual award, but team success uh, plays into it, fairly or unfairly. So, fact or fiction, Jaden Daniels will win the Heisman Trophy. Ooh, I, I say fiction, even though I'll be voting for him. I think he's the best player in the country. His stats are off the charts. Uh, I don't penalize a a player for being on a team. He doesn't play defense, so I don't penalize him for having to carry LSU's defense. I voted for Lamar Jackson at Louisville. I voted for Tim Tebow in uh, 2007. No, I'm sorry. Well, he he did win it in 2007. Florida didn't have a great – they didn't have a championship team, though. But we talked about this off air, and you make a really good point. If you're not playing on championship Saturday or championship weekend, it's hard to win over voters. And let's face it, all these voters aren't watching as much college football as we do Saturday after Saturday. I mean, I've seen all these players, but you can have Oregon and what you could have them. It's not a cinch, but Oregon and Washington playing for the Pac-12 championship in a rematch. Neither one of those defenses are are, are super. So you know that Penix and uh, – and uh, Bo Nix are going to put up big numbers, and, and just all these other contenders uh, will be. A lot of them will have play uh, the best players, and Heisman candidates will be playing on that that weekend. And I think it will be hard for Jaden Daniels to overcome that. And now we don't know. There's a, uh, another factor with the injury uh, he suffered against LSU. 
I mean, against Alabama. Yeah, I would go fiction as well. Um, I don't, I don't know where I'll have him on my ballot. I will certainly consider him regardless of the team record. Um, but you know, thinking about voters at large, first of all, there seems to be such a heavy fascination with the Pac-12 situation this year. Um, I think part of that's because it's the swan song for for that conference, and that conference is is the best it's been in years. It's got a lot of really good quarterbacks. I, I think Heisman voters might feel pulled in that direction, and whoever wins the rematch, if it happens between Washington and Oregon, the quarterback of that team, I think would would be a really good chance to win the Heisman. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you know, since the start of the college football playoff, there's just been one quarterback off a team that had three losses win the award when the award was decided. That was Lamar Jackson, the man you voted for. Um, I believe I voted for Lamar Jackson number one that year too. Uh, it, it was, I think it was easier to do before the playoff. The playoff didn't suck up all the oxy- oxygen and there were just two teams headed to the BCS. So I think it was easier to win the award, you know, off of a lesser team before the college football playoff. I, I just think it's incredibly hard to do now. And there will be other good options out there, whether it be Michael Penix at Washington, Knicks at Oregon, um, or, or someone else emerging. So I will say Daniels is a finalist, but does not win the award. Let's stick with the Heisman, John, because I'm now starting to wonder whether there's a path for two SEC players to at least reach this, the finalist ceremony. Um, it seems like there's usually four finalists there. I don't know if that's a hard and fast rule at this point. The numbers have varied over the years. Uh, but let's assume that there's four Heisman finalists in New York. Uh, Georgia's Carson Beck is sort of quietly putting together a Heisman finalist type of season. His numbers are really, really good. He's averaging over 300 yards passing per game. He's completing 72% of his passes. For whatever reason, he's really flying below the rate of this award behind Jaden Daniels, behind, you know, some of those guys from the Pac-12. So, but they, but he's got big games ahead. He, he's got an opportunity this weekend against Ole Miss. He's got Tennessee coming up. He's got SEC Championship. I think the schedule sets up well for him to sort of have a come-from-behind type of campaign here. So fact or fiction, Carson Beck will be among, be among the Heisman finalists. I'll go fiction on that. I just think he didn't have a good start in in the Heisman conversation, and and that still matters. Uh, and you have so many quarterbacks putting up big numbers. He's got really good numbers, uh, but not as good as Jaden Daniels, not as good as Michael Penix. Uh, it certainly could be a factor with if Georgia keeps winning. I agree with that, but I think it's going to be tough. Don't forget about Florida State. And Jordan Travis, I, I think he doesn't have the numbers that some of the other guys do too, but Florida State's also unbeaten, and it has that big opening game win over opening season win over LSU. I, and I just think it would be tough for Carson Beck to be there because he was kind of a – he was really an unknown going into the season. And, and the other thing that would work against him – there's so many dynamic quarterbacks. We've talked about Jaden Daniels. We've talked about uh, Jalen Milrow, who make these highlight videos. I don't think Carson Beck has enough highlight videos. He's made some great throws, but he's not going to run 70 yards for a touchdown. It's unlikely. Well, maybe uh, against Vanderbilt, but you just, you know, I just think all that would work against him. But he's having a he's having a really good year. Reminds me a little bit last year of uh, C.J. Stroud at Ohio State. You make a a few good points there, John. You mentioned that Carson Beck was not like on the preseason list of Heisman contenders. That that shouldn't matter, but it sort of does. It's such a media-driven award, a narrative-driven award. And so being on like those those preseason odds lists, the preseason media hopefuls, lists like that that seems to play into it to a certain extent and and uh you know he wasn't guys who follow the the SEC were very familiar with Carson Beck i think you know if you cover college football on the west coast i don't know that you you, you maybe still haven't heard of Carson Beck <laughs> let's not give some of these voters too much credit right uh-huh. uh, and you make a good point with Jordan Travis too someone i hadn't mentioned you know florida state keeps winning stays undefeated 
even if his quite as good as some of these other guys, I think he's going to gobble up you know, his share of votes as well. Maybe even J.J. McCarthy from Michigan. So there's going to be a lot of competition for the award. I just think the schedule sets up so well for Georgia to be in these spotlight games on the stretch. Ole Miss, Tennessee, SEC Championship against Alabama. If Carson Beck throws for 250, 300 against Alabama to win the SEC Championship, I think that will catch the attention of a lot of voters. I'm going to say he just barely makes the cut. In fact, is uh, maybe a fourth-place finisher to just get in there as a Heisman finalist. I know it, well, you, yeah, you, it feels like a long because there are so many guys in the mix for it, but but uh, I think it just slides in there. But you, you bring up a good point, though. I go back to last season. I don't remember people talking about Stetson Bennett, Georgia's quarterback, as a Heisman finalist for much of the year. But then he, he excelled, and he had those big game opportunities in the SEC championship game. He stood out uh, in Georgia winning again. Uh, he got everybody's attention. But if you go back to when the season started, Stetson Bennett, yeah, he'd won the last championship, but he still wasn't considered an elite quarterback going into his final year. But over the course of that season, nobody could deny that he was an elite quarterback. And he was at his, be- at his best when it mattered most. So maybe Beck could do- follow the same path. All right, let's get into a coaching conversation here for our next one, John. I, I consider there to be like a eh, about four coaches on the short list right now for SEC Coach of the Year. And I don't actually – this is one of those awards where um, – I, I could not care less who actually wins. I mean, it, it matters to coaches, I guess, because it gives them a little bonus. I mean, a lot of them have it in their contracts. If they win Coach of the Year, they get some six-figure bonus or something. You know, it's a narrative we end up talking about, I feel like, a lot throughout late October, November. And then, you know, after the award is decided, within two weeks, I probably couldn't even tell you who was named SEC Coach of the Year. So. I know. Yeah, I, I guess I'm belittling the award, even though I'm making it a topic here. But it is it is a fun conversation, at least, I think. And I, I think there's four candidates at this juncture. You have uh, Eli Drinkwitz at Missouri, Lane Kiffin, and then you have Kirby Smart and Nick Saban. To me, that's that's the four-name shortlist with, with a few weeks remaining. So fact or fiction, Eli Drinkwitz or Lane Kiffin will be the SEC's coach of the year. Fiction. I, I think uh, if Missouri would have beaten Georgia, Eli Drinkwitz would have been the favorite. But now I kind of look at, I know it's, we don't typically, you don't typically award the best coach in college football with the coach of the year award. <laughs> I, I mean, it's almost like Nick Saban is in another category. And I think Kirby Smart has kind of reached that, that uh, pedestal as well. Uh, he's, uh, you could say they're one, two as college coaches now nationally, but uh, yeah, I would uh, I would give it to Saban if the season continues on the same course, and Alabama wins out. Certainly, uh, maybe even if it loses a close game in the championship game, I just think Nick Saban had a lot of juggling to do this year. He had two new coordinators for one thing, and I think he's been more hands on in in that area. And he doesn't have dynamic players at receiver and running back, and his offensive line was just really at best. It's just kind of yeah, it's pretty good it, on its best day, but that's about it. And uh, and he lost uh, some key players on defense from last year. So yeah, I would probably I would probably vote for Nick Saban. But I'm like you; these coaches are rewarded so much already with their contracts. Does anybody care? Uh, if they get a coach of the year award and another thing about it, Blake, think back to how many coaches they're a coach of the year one year. And then a year or two later, they're fired. It, it's <laughs> right. happened. Yeah. It's happened oh, yeah. a lot of times. Yeah. And I'm going to go fact on this one. I'm going to take the other, the other way okay. because I think the media likes to vote for the coach of the sleeper team. I don't know if this is fair, but like, I don't think they'll want to vote for Kirby even if even if Georgia goes undefeated, because it's like, well, Georgia was supposed to be good. They are good. Yeah, I don't think the media at large will vote for Kirby. Um, Saban, I could see winning 
I agree, especially if they were to win the SEC championship, then, then I think Saban becomes your lead contender. If they lose, you know, maybe in the Iron Bowl, which would be an upset, but the Iron Bowl can be strange sometimes, he's out. Even if they were to lose in Atlanta, I, I don't know that it goes to Saban. Just because, you know, over the years, we we see that this award often goes to um, to the coach from the sleeper team. Missouri, weren't they preseason number six in the East, John? Or they, they were either picked fifth or sixth in the East. Yeah, I, I think, know. I, I had Missouri yeah. a solid six. I had it entrenched in six plus. You did. And, and thank goodness for Vanderbilt, or you would have had him even lower. So I think, I agree with you. If, if Drink would have beat Georgia on Saturday, I think he could have sewed up the award right then and there. However, I think if he beats Tennessee... And if Missouri finishes second in the East, I still think he he's the guy to win the award. Um, he'll be from that overachieving sleeper team. They they finish with Tennessee at home, Florida at home, on the road at Arkansas. There's a path to ten and two for Missouri. If they go ten and two, I think Drinkwitz is winning it. Um, I think Kiffin can win it if Ole Miss upsets Georgia. On Saturday, if if Ole Miss wins Saturday, Kiffin is your front runner for the award. If Ole Miss goes ten and two, I don't know that Kiffin wins it just because two years ago they were ten and two going into the Sugar Bowl. So factors in too. The time you do something, you know, everybody's on board Coach of the Year. Then if you do that two years later, uh, you don't win Coach of the Year. That's why Saban hasn't won the award uh, more than he has. But I think it'll be either. Drinkwitz or Kiffin. So I will I will uh, say fact. All right, hot seat conversation. John, we got a few of them here. We've talked the most about Jimbo Fisher and Sam Pittman. So we will start there. Let's start with Jimbo. He's now five and four. He's now three games under where Kevin Sumlin was at this point in Sumlin's tenure. Sumlin was fired after winning seven games in his final season at Texas A&M. It was his sixth season. Good chance Texas A&M winds up 7-5 and five this year. This is Jimbo's sixth season. Of course, the big difference there is Jimbo has a $77 million buyout. A uh, little bit more than what Kevin Sumlin got. Just a little bit. But we know Texas A&M has a, uh, almost unmatched to pass the hat. So fact or fiction, our man Jimbo will be fired in 2023. Fact. I know this, the 76 or 77 million, I've seen both figures uh, buyout seems incredible and so dawning, but you, you know, you just uh, crank up a couple more uh, drilling devices there and, and you find the money somewhere. The problem is that the only reason you wouldn't fire him is because of the buyout. So what does that do for the overall atmosphere of your football program? Hey, come to play Texas. Come play for Texas A&M in recruiting, for example. Hey, come play for the Aggies. Uh, we've got uh, uh, the we've got the greatest coach money can buy, and we'd love to get rid of him, but we can't because we're paying him too much money. Um, I just don't see it. If you take what he's done with what he has, and I know he lost his quarterback this year. And Max Johnson, the backup, hadn't been as good as I thought he would be. But still, bottom line, you look at what Sumlin did, what Jimbo's done. Why would anybody think, well, next year Jimbo could turn it all around? That's just defying logic. Yeah, and you know, I, I hear folks in our chair when they make the argument that Jimbo can't be fired of, well, it would be a, a historic buyout of epic proportions. Well, when won't it be a historic buyout of epic proportions? <laughs> like even if they wait and fire him next year, it would be like three times the buyout that Gus Malzahn got, which is currently the record buyout of 21 and a half million. Even if they fired him the year after that, it would still be a historic buyout of epic proportions. So it's not like you can just wait another year and all of a sudden that buyout becomes, you know, something more, um, more familiar to us. No, it, 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 at any point when they fire him, unless they just wait for like eight years, which they're not going to do, 
at any point, it's going to break the record for buyout. It's going to be a historic buyout. Texas A&M has been reckless with this contract with Jimbo at every turn. Um, they're the reason we have these 10-year fully guaranteed contracts. They were they were the trendsetter giving it to Jimbo. They re-upped a couple years ago. At some point, they're going to do it again, and, and they're going to be that trendsetter of, hey, now now coaches at big-time programs can get can get $77 million buyouts. So I agree with you. I think it's fact. Uh, I think they might have one more loss in them to LSU. That puts them at 7-5. and five. And for all the reasons you're just saying, that there's no there's no optimism about the future if you go seven and five with a six year coach. I don't think Texas A and M wants to do that. I don't think they will do it. I think if they go seven and five, which I think they will, I think they fire Jimbo Fisher. Fact. How about Sam Pittman, Arkansas's man who's off the mat? Fired Dan Enos, and all of a sudden Arkansas is scoring thirty nine points against Florida for Arkansas's third victory. They got a cupcake still remaining. They can probably get to at least four. I don't know if they get more than four wins. Fact or fiction, Sam Pittman is fired in 2023. I'm glad you added the number. I would say fiction. I think he's a next-year guy. Uh, I think the win at Florida was crucial for him. He won that game, won at the Swamp. That was an upset. And so that will keep him alive for another year. Um, I, I don't see, though, we're talking about fan optimism, fan enthusiasm. Do you really think Razorback fans would be that enthusiastic about it? Thank goodness we got Sam Pittman coming back. We are ready to roll in 24. No, but then you look at it, it's not like it's not like Arkansas is expected to win the West. So the the expectations are lower for Arkansas fans than they are, I think, for Texas A&M fans. So I think Sam Pittman, plus he's kind of a likable guy. And I think that works in his favor. So I think he'll be back. Yeah, I mean, coaches are not retained or fired purely on whether they're likable or jerks. I mean, there's a lot of jerks, long-tenured jerks out there, right? But when you're when you're kind of teetering on the edge, that can help buy you another season if if uh, if you're a likable sort and, and Sam Pittman falls into that category. I also think, and we've talked about this before, John, yeah, I, I think a struggling coach one time gets to play the pin it on the coordinator card. And Sam <laughs> Pittman had never played that card from his hand before until he fired Dan Enos. And now all of a sudden, Arkansas scores 39 points against Florida, the same team that had scored three points their last time out against lowly Mississippi State is hanging 39 in the swamp. So I think that's an effective narrative to play one time of – you know, Sam Pittman still doesn't look great because he hired Enos, but you just say, hey, I I screwed it up. I made a bad hire. Here's all the reasons why I'm not going to screw up the next hire. And then I think you can maybe um, spin that narrative forward into another season. The other thing is here, Arkansas gets Auburn at home this week. And I know Auburn, in some ways, I feel like it's a little bit of an improving team. Maybe it's just the schedule, but they've won two in a row. They beat Mississippi State by two touchdowns. They beat Vanderbilt by two touchdowns. They feel like a little bit of an improving team. However, I wouldn't put it past Arkansas to beat Auburn at home this week. They get them in Fayetteville. If they, went, if they beat Auburn, they also have Florida International on the schedule. Five and seven isn't the stuff of celebration, but five and seven would give them three wins in the month of November. Yeah, I think you can spin that forward. I, I think Sam Pittman hangs around into 2024. Yeah, what about that? And I don't know off the top of my head, but I, is that Missouri game in Fayetteville this year? The Missouri game's in Fayetteville. Yeah, mm-hmm. see that? that I yeah, what if he goes 4-0 sh- in November? Hmm. Well, I mean, I'd give it a shot. I just think uh, that, you know, the fact that the offense did so much better was a factor in it, too. Uh, he's still got a pretty good quarterback. Uh, one thing that, that I think might give Arkansas fans hope for the rest of the season, that at least that was my take on the Florida game, is down as Arkansas had been and it went, lost six games in a row, after all the defeats, some of them very close, it played really hard against Florida. That tells me it'll play just as hard, if not harder, this Saturday against Auburn. If it hasn't been discouraged yet, apparently it's immune to being discouraged and it will keep playing hard. 
All right, we got a few more prompts to get to. Last one on the hot seat front, John. We're going to put it in Billy Napier and Shane Beamer until later. Um, both of us believe that we'll be having a conversation about those two, but not until next season. So we're not going to get into them. Zach Arnett, though, the first-year coach at Mississippi State, his buyout is peanuts. He was promoted after the death of Mike Leach. It was what Mississippi State needed to do at the time. I don't think anybody questioned that. But he's at four and five. Their offense is anemic. Now, an injury to quarterback Will Rogers has had a hand in that, but the offense really wasn't all that good before Will Rogers got injured. And Texas A or excuse me, Mississippi State's bowl streak sneakily long a a long time. I think it dates back to uh, 2010. It started under Dan Mullen. They've made a bowl game in every year since 2010. They're four and five. They're in danger of missing a bowl game this year. It would just cost a couple million bucks to get rid of Zach Arnett. Normally, I'm not a fan of getting rid of coaches after their first year, John. But when you look at the product on the field and you look at the uh, lack of momentum on the recruiting trail, if there was ever a time, this is it. Fact or fiction, Zach Arnett is fired in 2023. I'll go fact. Um, It's tough firing a guy after one year, but I think it depends on how you present it. And it's almost as though he wasn't called an interim coach, but in a way he was kind of an interim hire because of Mike Leach's death, the right thing to do at the time to maintain some continuity amid a really tragic situation and the loss of a, a very popular coach, popular not just at the school he was coaching, but throughout the country, sort of a legendary figure that Mike Leach became. I, I just think it was, okay, we'll put Zach Arnett in there. He's never been a head coach, but we'll see how he does. And so in a way, it's almost like he was an interim coach. And I think, so now you look at it in hindsight and say, well, we knew he was a good defensive coordinator, but look at the offense. He's just a, not an overall head coach. He, he can't, he's not a big picture guy. And he's probably a great defensive coordinator, and he won't have a trouble getting a job somewhere else as a coordinator. So it's an easy time to make that make that move. And then you have the athletic director was hired after he was promoted to head coach. So it's not his guy. And, you know, the ADs would prefer to have their guy. So I think that could work against Zach Arnett too. I don't think there would be an outcry from Mississippi State supporters if you fired Zach Arnett. No, there might be a bigger outcry if, if they don't. And I and he was a really pop it's kind of a shame to see in some ways because he was a he was a really popular defensive coordinator. In a lot of ways he didn't really ask for this. Like you know it was a it was a tragic, unpredictable situation, Mike Leach's death. He was the right guy for the job in that moment. It was like a one-year experiment. The experiment's not working. And uh, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, for all the reasons you said, I think fact uh, will not get a sex in. And the big thing is, you know, on top of everything we've discussed, if you look at the SEC recruiting rankings as a 16-team collection, adding Oklahoma and uh, Texas into the mix, because we should do that. They'll be in the league next year. Mississippi State right now, ranks 16th out of 16 in the SEC and recruiting rankings. Now, granted, things can change, you know, in the final five, six weeks before December signing day, but I don't know that they're going to change much for the better for Mississippi State. In fact, uh, it's trending in the wrong direction. So whereas Billy Napier can sell the future, he can sell his recruiting class, and I don't think he's any in any real danger of being fired this year, Napier that is. He's also got a, a buyout about, three times this, or excuse me, about 10 times the size of our nets. Um, but he's also, he's got the recruiting class, right? He's Florida's got one of the best recruiting classes in the nation. Mississippi state doesn't have that. There, there's really other than just staying the course with a coach for a second season. Uh, and the fact that it's kind of a bad look to fire a guy after one year, there's really no great case for keeping our net. And I don't think they, they will. I think they move on a uh, couple more, John, then we're going to get to our picks. The shine from LSU's SEC West uh, division crown and Brian Kelly's debut, it's gone. LSU's 6-3, and three. and while I don't think they'll lose to Texas A&M, 
in the season finale. We total we can't totally rule it out. Uh, LSU is a comeback against Missouri away from having just a disastrous season. Um, they needed they needed a strong second half there to survive in Como, and there's really not much else on the resume uh, of this six and three record. Their recruiting class ranks 10th nationally right now. Not bad, but LSU, I think, aspires for a little bit stronger recruiting than that. They're recruiting well in-state. Um, it's not one of their best crops of in-state talent that they've ever had. So fact or fiction, it's time to be concerned about the Brian Kelly era at LSU. I would go fiction. His track record is too good. And he exceeded expectations in his first season last year when he beat Alabama, won the West, uh, really did a nice job of working the transfer portal, uh, covered up some weaknesses. This year has been a disappointment. Uh, I think a lot of people that are going to be critical of Kelly is going to wonder what's going on with Harold Perkins, who was a star as a freshman linebacker. LSU changed his role, which – pretty much mystified me. He's an elite pass rusher. And now you just see him dropping back into coverage and getting lost. And yet you don't even notice him on the field. That's got to be rectified. It might be time for uh, Brian Kelly. He might hire Zach Garnett as his uh, defensive coordinator. I like that one. Hey, uh, I, I'm with you. Fiction. I, I think it's my antenna are up, but I wouldn't say it's it's panic time um, or a high level of concern time with with Brian Kelly. Um, I've maybe slowed my roll a little bit on on him. Uh, you know, I was singing his praises before the season. I don't know that I'm doing that now, but I'm not panic button either. He was a year ahead of schedule after year one. If you would have told me a week after they hired him that LSU would say go nine and three in his second season. I would say, yeah, that sounds about right. It's just that they won the West in year one. It raised the bar. This year has been an underachievement, no doubt. But I think overall, collectively, as we view this through two years, it's about where I thought it would be. So I'm not panicking uh, yet about Brian Kelly in LSU. Last one, John, then we'll make some picks. Fact or fiction, if Georgia loses at any point, whether that would be Ole Miss, Tennessee, or in the SEC championship. I'm not including Georgia Tech because they're not going to lose to Georgia Tech. Uh, but if they lose at any point, they will not make the college playoff. One loss, Georgia cannot get into the college football playoff. Fact or fiction? I'd go fact. I just think it would be very difficult despite its recent track record in back-to-back national championships. And you'd, you'd kind of like to see a two-time defending national champion with a chance to make history being the first team in about 90 years to win three consecutive titles. It would be good for college football. It would be good for TV ratings, I think. But um, the way things are shaping up, I just don't think Georgia would get in it's it's schedule has has toughened uh, down the stretch. It's tougher, but overall, when you look at that schedule, and there's no real formidable non-conference opponent, I think that's something the committee would look at. So it could get come down to there's a bunch of one-loss teams, but I still see there's a chance for some unbeaten teams. Uh, you know, Big Ten champion, maybe the Pac-12 champion, and I think Florida State's going to win win out. So I just think it would be hard for Georgia to do that. I agree. I think there's a path to get in with one loss, but it's going to be really crowded, It's it seems like, this year in that conversation. Maybe some chaos still ensues and, and would open up an avenue for them to back their way in, but yeah, I don't, I don't feel real great about it. I think they need to win out then, and they very well, well may do it. Um, but I, I think they need to to get into the playoffs. All right, now on to the picks segment of the pod, the highly anticipated picks from John and I. And, uh, well, I hope you're not following our suggestions for your betting strategy, or if you do, uh, just do the opposite of what we suggest, because we were each 2-4 and four last week, which makes it a compelling race. Kind of reminds me of this weekend's game 
between Vanderbilt and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, really a pillow fight between John and I. Uh, John still holds a half game lead. He's 24, 31, and two. I'm 24, 32, and one. <laughs> Starting to think neither one of us will finish 500, uh, which matches the Vanderbilt South Carolina narrative. Uh, that one is not going to be among our list of games this week. We're picking. It didn't make the cut, uh, but we're going to pick a handful of SEC games and then have our lock. So, John, uh, we talked at length about Alabama in the open. Is this a quote unquote trap game? Whatever that means. Kind of reminds me of like a mouse trap sitting there in Lexington or something, or uh, uh, one of those things that reach up and grab your ankle, the old bear claw. Alabama, 10.5 point favorite in a quote-unquote trap game at Kentucky. Do you see the trap, or is that a figment of the media's imagination? I see the trap, and I see Alabama picking up the trap and hitting Kentucky over the head with it. (laughs) Yeah, I can see Uh, that image. Yeah. Good picture there. Uh, okay, so I take it you like Alabama to cover. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. All I right. mean, Alabama can sense a championship now. And yeah. when Alabama senses a championship, I think the competition is in trouble. Yeah, this is one of those Kentucky seasons where they're probably going to finish around 7-5, and 8-4, and four, go to the Music City Bowl or something of that ilk. And uh, they'll put another couple of bricks on the statue for Mark Stoops, paved by uh, the Mid-American Conference. Uh, give a uh, shout out to the Mac, yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right, John, a uh, a sneaky good game here. One that you'll have your eye on, I know. Um, Tennessee, one and a half point favorite at Missouri. If we recall last year, Tennessee ran it up on the Tigers. There were some folks upset about that. You and I were not. I think uh, you put the scrubs in the game, you let them score touchdowns. That's the way it works. And uh, coaches are paid to keep points off the board. Missouri couldn't do it last year. Uh, They got embarrassed at Neyland Stadium, but much, much different Missouri team this year playing well. They gave Georgia one of their best games of the season last year. They did it again this year. And now they are getting a point and a half inside fierce Faroe Field. Who do you pick here? I don't know that it's ever been called that, but you might be onto something. You might be a trendsetter there. Fierce Faroe feel. I like the alliteration. Uh, and I think it'll be a great game, but I would still like Tennessee. <laughs> I guess it's a hard time. Get, it, it's hard getting past those last two games. Tennessee scored 62, then 66. Missouri's been stuck on 24. Uh, and this may not be a factor. But Brady Cook, who's had a great year for Missouri at quarterback, did not play well down the stretch against uh, Georgia. Uh, I just thought he handled everything so well. But down the stretch, he threw a couple of interceptions. There was one that was just inexcusable that he threw to Nas Stackhouse, who rambled down the field after catching it. So, uh, yeah, I just still like – and this may be more about tradition. I just don't see – Josh Heupel in Tennessee losing this game, but I think it'll be close. Yeah, Brady Cook had his his worst showing in the season while Tennessee was beating up on on UConn. Uh, both teams beat Kentucky. Both teams beat South Carolina. Like really, as you look at the resumes, these teams are very comparable. Uh, Tennessee beat LS, or excuse me, Tennessee beat Texas A and M. Missouri beat, uh, or excuse me, didn't beat, but gave LSU. Uh, you know, a, a really strong game there in Columbia. Not much separating these two. I'm going to go with the home team. I I will take Missouri to win and to cover the point and a half. So we got we got a little difference there. Uh, how about Auburn and Arkansas? Two and a half point favorite. The Hogs. I'll I'll lead us off here. I'm I'm back on the Arkansas bandwagon. I've picked them in in the spread. And, I'm on the spread bandwagon. I guess I should clarify. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they're going to win anything of consequence here, but I've liked them against the spread for most of the season. Then I, then I cooled on them a little bit. I faded them. They've won me back over. I never should have cooled. I picked Florida to cover last week, got burned. And I think, uh, I think Arkansas is going to finish strong this month. And as we talked about earlier, I think Pittman keeps his job. Uh, I'm not totally won over by Auburn's, wins over Mississippi State and Vanderbilt. I think that Auburn is 
is getting a little bit better throughout the course of the season, but I think those wins say more about the opponents than they say about Auburn. So once again, I will take the home team, and I'll take Arkansas to cover two and a half points. I think you were right to cool on Arkansas and right to get back on the bandwagon. Um, if you can if you can beat Florida in the swamp, and we're not talking about any great teams here. We're not mentioning any great teams in this debate, but uh, beat Florida in the swamp, and you can beat Auburn home. I think the crowd will really rally around uh, the Razorbacks. A lot of pig, pig suey calls going out there, and I think Arkansas will – I think the – it will gain momentum off that Florida win because this team had every right to be down. Like I said earlier, it kept playing hard for whatever that's worth. And it was worth a lot in the swamp. So I'll go, I'll go Arkansas to cover. It's a really big game for Hugh freeze. I think John, I mean, it's not a big game as if like he's getting fired if he loses, but you know, we talk about sometimes like the difference in narrative and and perception, how much one game can swing it. If, if Auburn loses, they, they still probably make a bowl game because they have New Mexico State the following week. They would need to beat them, and they get six wins. I mean, New Mexico State's not terrible. They're seven and three. But, you know, from a lower lower level conference, so you would think Auburn still gets that one. And that even if they lose to Arkansas, they get to six and six, assuming they would lose the Iron Bowl. But I, I feel like there's a big difference in perception here of Auburn going six and six versus seven and five in Hugh Freeze's debut. And I don't know how much that matters. I don't think it's going to affect his recruiting class all that much. You know, it's not going to be the difference between um, getting fired or not. Hugh, you know, Auburn's, they're they're in it with Hugh Freeze. Um, I think they'll show a little more patience than, than they did with Brian Harson at the very least, with Hugh Freeze. But just from a perception sense, I think this is a really big one for Hugh because I think seven and five, uh, you can hang your hat on that a little bit. Six and six, it's hard to celebrate that even with a first-year coach. Yeah, I agree, um, but I, I think or I still think Auburn made a really good hire there. I think it'll work out well long term. Uh, but no matter what happens in this game, you still got a chance to change the narrative when you play Alabama, and uh, we've That's seen true. some strange developments take place when Auburn plays Alabama, particularly when it's at Jordan Hare Stadium. All right, a, uh, one of my favorite crossover rivalry games, John. It doesn't get talked about in the same sense that Alabama-Tennessee or Auburn-Georgia does, but if you're just looking at sheer competitiveness, Florida-LSU has given us some great ones uh, over the years. This one, uh, the, the prognosticating calling for a more lops fair. Now, Jaden Daniels exiting with injury on Saturday throws that into question a little bit, but nonetheless... LSU at home, 14-point favorite against the Gators. Uh, I'm taking the points here. I, I think the the obvious move would just say, well, Florida just lost to Arkansas. They're reeling. Um, I don't know. I, I, think, I think Florida can score on LSU. LSU's defense can't really stop anybody. So I expect a high-scoring game that LSU will win regardless of who's playing quarterback. But I think Florida can score enough uh, that I'll take those 14 points in the Gators. Yeah, I agree with you. LSU, I thought LSU's defense was getting better until I saw it against Alabama. And, and looking back, I think it was mainly the competition dropped off is why it appeared to be getting better. Uh, and I think a lot of times when a when a team plays, loses a game it's supposed to win, as Florida did against Arkansas, uh, teams can bounce back from that. And, and I think it, I think Florida will. Um, and I still don't know, but the main reason, I just don't know if Jaden Daniels will play. Yeah. And, and, um, Brian Kelly, uh, I believe as we record this on Monday, John, he, he called him day to day, which doesn't tell us much, but Brian Kelly said that we won't, he probably won't know until later in the week, whether Jaden Daniels can play on this week. And I believe that because, you know, this appears to be, you know, some type of concussion type of protocol. And so oftentimes coaches don't know until later on in the week, whether a guy's cleared to play uh, or not. It's not like an ankle injury where you just say, coach, I'm, I'm gutting it out. Put me out there on Saturday. Well, so, so I, I do believe that there's probably some uncertainty, you know, right on Monday afternoon as we record this about whether Jaden Daniels plays. Well, Blake, with that in mind, I really think uh, in fairness to 
us if he doesn't play. Um, no, I'll say, let's put it this way. If he does play and LSU covers the spread, it shouldn't count against us because I'm really making this pick based on his not playing. All right, a free pick for us. That's your, yeah, uh, uh-huh. your argument. Is How about the game that? of the week, John? Uh, Ole Miss at Georgia. I think this would be a legacy victory for Lane Kiffin. He got a big one against LSU, but this is the biggest game for Ole Miss since probably those back-to-back wins over Alabama when Hugh Freeze was its, was its coach. Not only just for Kiffin, we would have to start taking Ole Miss's chances for the playoff seriously. I know that's a long shot because they're going to win the West because the tiebreaker with Alabama. But for one, Georgia on the road, you're in the playoff conversation. Well, Georgia's an 11.5-point favorite. What are you thinking there? I'm thinking Ole Miss to, with the points, but I think Georgia will win the game. Uh, Georgia really struggled against Missouri, and I think Ole Miss is a little better than Missouri. Uh, they do. They both be playing at Sanford Stadium. Um, I, I just, again, I don't like Ole Miss to win the game, but I think it, I could see it being a nine or ten point game, thirty to twenty, something of that nature. So I'll take the points uh, and go with Ole Miss. All right. Well, I need to make up ground on you. I was going to take Georgia anyway, but now I'm doing it with conviction. I, I see this maybe as a is it fourteen point game, and Georgia just. Just barely doing enough to cover the cover the spread. Ole Miss lost to Alabama on the road by 14. I'll say they'd lose by 14 on the road against Georgia. And uh, Ole Miss heads to New Year's Six. Georgia heads to Atlanta uh, while it's still got the three-peat in its sights. That brings us to our locks of the week, which we've rebranded as our unlocks of the week with uh, our success rate. John, what do you have for us this week in the lock department? I'm a big believer in law of averages and law of averages are I'm due to hit one of these because I think I've missed on about six in a row. Okay. And I don't think I'm exaggerating that number week after week, a game after game. I try different conferences, different tactics. The result has always been the same. I lose. So, uh, I'm taking Michigan and against Penn state uh-huh. giving the points. Um, I think Michigan's a team on the on a mission right now. It's Michigan against the world because of this alleged cheating scandal. And I think it will be the driving force to Michigan to into the right into the college football playoff, maybe all the way to national championship. So I didn't you're really giving, like you're what giving I saw. Five and a half State. here. You're yeah, giving I, five and a half on the road. No problem with that. Yeah, I thought it was three. The line I saw was three and a half. So yeah, I do have a problem with that. But <laughs> okay. but I'll uh, but you I'll want, stick. You know I what? We we we've been so bad this year, John. If you saw somewhere out there that a, a three and a half line, you get the three and a half line. Well, Who am I mean, I? it wasn't it wasn't some uh, line my next door neighbor scribbled on a sign. It was on. Uh, ESPN, I saw it was three and a half. So there you go. Good enough for the four letter network. Good enough for us. You're 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 taking <laughs> Michigan and giving the three okay. and a half points. Uh I'm going to the uh I'm going to the Mac. I uh I, I think I've had more luck this year when I picked from the group of five than the than picking the big dog. So I'm going back to the little guy and I'm taking bowling green to cover seven and a half at Kent State. Kent State, one of the worst teams in the country. Bowling Green's been hot, John. They are. I don't know if you've been paying attention to what the Falcons have been doing. I have uh, not. I hadn't either until I needed a lock of the week. They've won three MAC games in a row. Uh, they're five and four, but two of their losses are against Power Five opponents, and another is against undefeated Liberty. So that's a deceiving five and four. They've been good in the conference. Kent State's terrible. I'll take Bowling Green. To cover the seven and a half, I'm sure we got six and zero weeks ahead of us, and I'm even more sure we'll be back to discuss it next week. Thanks for listening to SEC Football Unfiltered. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. 
Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.